Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. So they said this jury um, is in so much danger of being interfered with that they cannot go home at the end of the trial. They have to go and stay in a hotel and we're going to keep them under watch. You know, we don't hear of this stuff anymore. No. Um, <laughs> this would make a great um, yeah, yeah. script, TV script. Welcome back to Crimes NZ. I'm Jesse Mulligan. We're up to season eight of this podcast, which looks at some of New Zealand's most notorious crimes with the people closest to them. Operation Mexico, which ran through the late 90s and early 2000s, led to one of the country's most sensational trials. During the operation, police bugged Peter Pedro Clevin, a headhunter's gang member accused of making a fortune from cannabis and methamphetamine. Journalist Patrick Gower was a pretty new reporter at the time, but this case and the subsequent trial is one that has stuck with him. I guess I was what people call a cub reporter. Um, I was in my first job at the New Zealand Herald and I was actually... Uh, the night shift reporter, I would come in at 6pm and I'd work till 1.30am on whatever was, was happening, you know, cleaning up after other people yeah. and following up the, you know, trying to get a brief onto page three and, <laughs> and anything happening at night time, listening to the police scanners. And Would it you, go in the next morning's paper? Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it would go in the next morning's paper. So if, you know, something happened before sort of midnight, we yeah. could kind of get it in the paper at the do, last do minute. Do you actually yell, stop the press? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Not quite. <laughs> not quite. Uh, you, but you could get close. You mm. could get close to that, you know, and um, uh, the fax machines would come. Roll. My job was to check the fax machine because it was pretty much before email. So I would have to go and clear the fax machine during the night. And if something uh, big did come on there, I'd have to run over to the to the news desk and to the night editor and say, hey, this is there, you know, and um, can you change page three or can you change page one? So it was a really uh, exciting job, but often quite monotonous and, and boring as well and left me to my own devices yeah. a lot at night time. And I guess a lot of the news that was happening after six o'clock at night was crime. Yeah, heaps of crime and dealing a lot with the police and sitting next to the, the police reporter who was a guy called Tony Wall um, who still reports yeah. for the Sunday Star Times, just one of the absolute best journalist of his generation mm. and was just a machine, you know, would wear a leather jacket into work and had, you know, a sort of, you know, real uh, contact book with all this sort of handwriting that looked, you know, looked really bad but have all the numbers in it. And um, I just, he was just my hero. Oh. And I just thought if I could be like anyone, be like, be like Warlow. And he'd call me Night Train, um, you know, because I was working on the Night Train and <laughs> and um, sort of tell me all these stories about his stories. And, you know, I was sort of, so I, I just became obsessed by crime. And a lot of people, you know, remember me for, for working in politics and, and on TV. But, you know, really my early career was really as a crime reporter. That was my 
driving force in life. I just I loved every aspect of it, um, exploring Auckland, exploring the underworld, um, looking into murders and um, different crimes and how they affected different parts of the city and, and different parts of the population. And it all really started there on the night beat. Did you actually get out onto the streets to report, or was it mostly oh, done from inside? The- no, hundred percent. I loved um, I loved going out of the office in the in the Herald Hyundai's, um, <laughs> and would go any chance. I mean, anybody who remembers me there will know that I loved going out on anything and and coming back with and coming back with stuff. And um, you know, but I'd also I was obsessed by research as well. You know, the Herald at that stage didn't even have a digital library. You know, you'd have to go downstairs and look through files and files of, of clippings. And I, I, I became interested in, in gangs in Auckland. I'd never heard of them. Um, I kind of thought of gangs as Black Power and the Mungle Mob. Mob. Yeah. And as soon as I heard about motorcycle gangs, as they were called, the Headhunters, the Hells Angels. Um, elite criminals, real hardened guys, hard to get into the gang, get out of it, a secret sort of society. I was just hooked, you know. I, uh, you know, and as soon as I heard about the headhunters, this um, this gang in Auckland that just controlled all the crime and sort of were linked back to everything. Everyone was scared of them, and the police had trouble arresting them, and they had all these nicknames like Choc and Pedro and Popeye and all of this sort of thing. As soon as I got into that, I was just hooked and I would just spend any available minute um, (laughs) looking into gangs, searching them on the company's register to see what sort of motorcycle shops they owned and finding out where they were and going downstairs into the Herald Library, which you could actually cross-reference someone's last name with their court appearances any time they'd been in court in the Herald. So you could get someone's name and go downstairs and find them done for disorderly behaviour in 1972 <laughs> and then, you know, and start to read these articles about them. So that, that's what I started doing, um, and, and mainly with this gang called the Headhunters, who for some reason really started to um, capture my imagination. Yeah, and when did you come across the name Pedro Cleveland? Pretty early on in that time because um, he was a big deal in the Headhunters at that point, and... You know, what people have got to realise is, is is the headhunters at that stage, the line that I'd always put in my story was that they were a tightly knit interracial group of only 25 patched members. So wow. if you were a, you know, a patched headhunter, you were kind of like the All Blacks of the underworld. You know, you were in the starting, you were in the starting 15 of the All Blacks. So this is where this guy Pedro was. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar with court reporting... While a trial is on, until someone is convicted or found not guilty, any of the backstory, you know, you can't report. Mm. You've got to just report what happens in court. That seems ludicrous to some people, right? Yeah, and people find that, you know, when there's and when there's big cases, yeah. and it all comes out that someone's a real scumbag, <laughs> and you're like, hey, the jury should really have known that, <laughs> yeah, you know. So, and for, but for crime reporters, it's ultra frustrating yeah. because you might find out information on day one that you can't use until mm. after the trial, which is one or two years or even more um, these days away, and you've sort of got to sit on it. Um, but what you do at that stage is, and, and a lot of people who've come on um, this segment, you know, I listen to it a lot, um, you know, they prepare backgrounders where you really get out and, and dig around behind a case and that sort of thing. And that's what I started doing when I heard that Peter Cleveland, Pedro, um, was in court um, and and had been charged with these these drug offences after a bugging operation, which police do all the time now. But back then, in the day, there was one 
police section that had one set of bugs, had one <laughs> cop that would run the bugging operations sure. and could target one criminal. It reminds me of that show, The Wire. It was. It was exactly like that because some police dude, you know, the technology wasn't that great. So some police officers would have to literally listen um, in a van mm. to everything that was going on inside Pedro's house. And he was living, um, he was not hiding his wealth. He was living in Titarangi in a, in a million dollar home, which actually, as part of the evidence came out, he'd paid $880,000 for. Now, the headhunters are known as the 88s because H is letter number eight in the right. alphabet. Yeah. So he had, as a sort of status symbol, paid $880,000 for this uh, gigantic pad. Um, and he had, you know, the Mercedes Benz and he had. Um, the Harley Davidson, the ubiquitous Harley Davidson with the HHMC Headhunters Motorcycle Club personalised plate. He was really sort of flaunting his wealth. Mm. And methamphet- rubbing it in the noses of police, you might rubbing say. Rubbing it in the noses of police, absolutely rubbing it in the noses. So they decided to have Operation Mexico to charge Pedro. You know, it was real sort of cops and robbers sort of stuff, you know. Mm. <laughs> and by the time I'd caught up with it, He'd already had one trial, which had um, ended up with no um, no verdicts, and the jury had been what they call in the trade uh, nobbled, or the police believe the juror, that a juror had been got to. Oh, so right. someone who was you know considering the case had um, um, in some way been interfered with yeah. and told to come up with a not guilty, Jeez. which was sort of pretty unheard of. You don't actually hear of that much anymore either. And so I was catching up with the retrial um, where they did something that I haven't heard since this happened either, where they sequestered the jury. So they said this jury um, is in so much danger of being interfered with that they cannot go home at the end of the trial. They have to go and stay in a hotel and we're going to keep them under watch. Wow. You know, we don't hear of this stuff anymore. No. Um, <laughs> this would make a great um, yeah, yeah. script, TV script. Yeah, and... Um, you know, so this jury was taken away, sequestered under, you know, security and all of this kind of stuff. And I always remember, you know, they would come down and you'd hear their requests, um, which were for things like um, more cigarettes, more alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why they don't sequester juries like this anymore. I don't think you could ever do it again. Um, and they were sort of, um, some of them were kind of starting to party or, you know, it's a pretty hard slog listening to a pretty complicated case like mm. this. Um, but that gave it a whole another edge as well um, to the, the drama um, that included Cleveland, um, you know, giving evidence on his own behalf. The laws were very different in those days, Jesse, and the police had come up with all of this money that he'd made and then he took the witness stand and came up with an alternative explanation <laughs> of how he'd made it. So they said all of this money made through methamphetamine and cannabis and then he jumped up and said no, all this money made through um, brothels, angora goat farming, swamp cody, um, taxing, which is, you know, when you stand, someone, um, you know, he would say, oh, someone drugged my girlfriend um, so I went and got 10 grand off them, you know, and he kind of added up another balance sheet that made up his income yeah. of all this slightly alternative ways <laughs> of earning money to, to, to what the police were saying, which was ma- meaning for a sensational, uh, a sensational kind of trial. The Angora goat farming will uh, stick out to people. I'm just going to share a text that came in. 
Uh, hi, guys. I actually met Peter Cleaven in the late 90s, and he took a bit of shining to me. He was an interesting character for sure, with a dangerous edge. However, we talked for great periods about Peter's father, who was instrumental in starting the Angora mohair goat industry. Um, unscrupulous pals used to turn up to where I resided near the main house, and the bikers would have punch-ups on the front lawn. But they'd stop mid-punch as I passed by, then I'd see them <laughs> resume in the rear-view mirror of the car as I was leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was saying that you know, he'd developed, um, you know, he'd been involved in developing uh, some sort of way of breeding. I mean, I can remember every word he said, you know, and it, it sort of had to do with, it was kind of something like tapping the angora goat on the back of the neck near a near a gland that would improve its breeding ability. You've got to remember, he's standing there in front of a high court judge explaining all of this thing, incredibly um, great detail that yeah. I, can, I can remember 20 years on. And I'm sure, I'm sure the jury can as well, uh, coming up with this alternative history yeah. of, of all his money in this, in this great sort of standoff with the, with the police. But, but it wasn't just the police saying one thing and him saying another. I mean, they actually had tapes of him appearing to boast about his drug activities, drug dealing activities. Yeah, and one of the things about this is this was actually the last big methamphetamine trial before P came in. So this was methamphetamine uh, when it was a, more of a party drug and was sniffed like people would sniff cocaine um, nowadays. You know, methamphetamine at this point was a party drug that people would sniff rather than the much more dangerous, pure methamphetamine that people would start smoking. So it was at the very, very end, um, I can remember actually P had started to to hit Auckland but when this trial was kind of ending. But the actual stuff that he was using was more of the the party drug, which they were, you could hear them sniffing, um, and he put a lot of the sniffing on tape down to his hay fever. Um, he admitted using some methamphetamine and said that, you know, a lot of the stuff that he was talking about was kind of boasting to impress um, women that he was talking to mm. at the time. So, you know, he had a lot of these, um, a lot of these sort of, Areas covered that the police were coming, with, that the police were coming at him with, and the jury that had been sequestered away in this hotel, someone got in there and got to one of them as well, and it turned out, it turned out that it was a police officer had gone to visit one of their friends that was sequestered, which was of amazing embarrassment to the New Zealand police who'd gone to all of this effort to sequester the jury away and the one unauthorised visitor was actually a police officer going going, going in there, which nearly caused a third trial because, you know, Cleveland and co were saying, well, it's you guys trying to interfere with the jury because the stakes were so high. Yeah. I mean, you've got to think of it. There were no other gang trials. There were no other bugging trials. The, this was the second time this was happening, you know, um, Mike McRoberts was there. He'd interviewed Cleveland himself for 60 minutes that was waiting to come out up at the house, you know, and there was just this sensation around it. So as a, just a young reporter like me, I was sitting there with a guy called Tony Stickley, who was the longtime high court reporter for the New Zealand Herald, referred to as Justice Stickley. He'd done so many cases. I think he'd done over 100 murders. And he was he was sort of covering the day-to-day -day stuff, and I was there getting ready for the backgrounder at the end. And, <laughs> you know, even he had seen it all and was still like, this is the most sensational trial I've seen in a long time. And even Stickley was sort of, <laughs> sort of getting excited by it.
Can you tell me how Pedro was coming across to the jury and what was his presence like in court? Well, he was hugely charismatic and nobody had heard sort of stories like he would tell. So, you know, he'd, he'd just start off saying, and then, you know, and then I put in some money after the Angora goats and the Swamp Cody, I put in some money um, into a bondage and discipline, par- bondage and discipline par- parlour. And I knew nothing about it, but I learned a lot about life. I lost money, but I learned a lot about life, you know, and, and, and stuff like this. So he was kind of regaling the jury with these tales from a, a slightly sort of, you know, and then he'd go, and then there was the time that I got tortured, you know, five days I was hung up in a thing because someone had the wrong idea about what I was doing. And he'd just go from story to story, taking people into this, into the netherworld, into the underworld. Um, so he was, you know, quite um, charismatic in some ways, you know, a little scary, but pretty pretty charismatic. And I was, of course, knowing that Mike McRoberts, who was a really, really big deal working for 60 Minutes, and I was just the cub reporter, I was still trying to, you know, get interviews with Cleveland and, and catch his eye and catch his attention in the breaks and try and talk to him about potentially getting a getting an interview afterwards every time McRoberts' producer would look away. I was sort of, sort of trying to sidle in there and Cleveland that was telling me I can't do any, any interviews. I've, I've done one with, with McRoberts in 60 Minutes, which was, you know, sort of, you know, I was trying to think of ways to get around that eventually <laughs> in the end. <laughs> um, he wasn't claiming to be an angel, basically, is the moral of this, right? He wasn't saying, hey, they've got the total wrong guy here. I'm, I'm a legit businessman. You know, he, he admitted that a lot of the money he made was in pretty grey yeah. areas. He was just denying the the mass scale drug dealing, which would have really got him into jail for a long time. That's right. And, you know, he'd have a lot of people, you know, people would come into court, they'd be screened because they didn't like people coming in and potentially um, uh, influencing the jury mm. from, from looking at yeah. them. But I remember this one day, you know, there was a a couple of women had come into court and uh, to support him, and the jury came back and said, "Hey, look, we've got something to tell the judge." Mm. And one of the jurors said, "Hey, look, you know, I know there's lots of sensitivity here. Um, I know one of the women from somewhere in the back. I just, I just can't place her. I just cannot place her." And then the judge was like, "Okay, thank you for telling me. That's important because you know we're trying to keep everything um, by the book here." And you know, then there were some inquiries made as to where this guy might might know her, and she explained <laughs> that you know she was a stripper, <laughs> which was a pretty uh, good lead to the fact that he might have see, seen her seen her at at work. So so the trial was punctuated by all of these little sideline kind mm. of dramas and 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 visits into the into into the underworld and a different a different side of, of Auckland than anyone had ever really seen before. Are you writing this up each day for the Herald? Yeah, I was keeping notes and talking to Cleveland and doing backgrounders and, 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 and talking to the police officer in charge. Uh, he won't mind me saying who it was, Detective Sergeant Daryl Brazier or DB, um, who was a sort of icon within the police at investigating these. You know, he was their nemesis, gang's nemesis, really. He was the officer in charge of organised crime in Auckland, and he would kind of go toe-to-toe with these guys and and absolutely fight them to the... Is he still around? Yeah, I think he's down in the Bay of Plenty. 
Um, and he, he, you know, if he's listening, he'll remember this <laughs> this trial well because he was like a character out of a movie as well. You know, a really hard bitten cop who would stop at nothing to get yeah. these guys. And you know, that was that was all part of it too. Okay, here's another name: Lance Evestaff. Who was he? Yeah, well, he was a former flatmate of um, Peter Clevens, who was running a large-scale cannabis operation and eventually got murdered for it. And Cleveland brought him up in the trial to say, all of the stuff that I um, have been, you know, that I was boasting to these women about my drug operation was actually just stuff that my mate Lance had told me. And I was trying to big up myself with these women, but Lance Evestaff was the guy that had um, shown me all of these ways of doing it. So he sort of incorporated him into the story, but it's, you know, just went to show, look, these are the kind of dudes that he's been friends with, you know, one of his former flatmates got got shot in the face type thing. So all of these things were coming out, and then, of course, it came down to the jury um, there to, you know, give its verdict, which was just you know, massive, a massive, massive day in, um, in 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 my career anyway. It was the biggest sort of verdict I'd gone to. And what happened? Not guilty on all charges. And Tony Stickley, the, the, the Justice Stickley, the high court reporter next to me, who'd covered, I'm pretty sure, something like 200 murder trials. I mean, this guy had seen it all in the high court at Auckland, Tony Stickley. And I remember him saying something like, holy heck. Um, and he's, he's like, you better try and talk to Cleveland because Cleveland was a free man, okay? He could walk out the front of court. You Exonerated. Know? And I sort of looped around to the front of court with the camera and bearing in mind that um, TV3 in 60 Minutes thought they had him sewn up with an exclusive as well. So there was pretty high stakes. And, of course, Cleveland walked out the front um, right uh, into me, and I was kind of half shaking, and asked him, you know, what he, what he, what he thought, what he thought. Did he have anything to say about it? And it, it, he had, when he'd been found not guilty, I remember he turned to the jury and said, "Thanks, jury," <laughs> which was a great, a great line. Like, not, not. I would not like to say thanks to the jury or anything. He just said thanks, jury. Like. <laughs> You know, he was that kind of guy. So by the time he came out the front, he had the whole time had his um, shirt sleeves, and I'm, I'm wearing a shirt at the moment as well. His shirt had always been done up. By the, by the time he came out the front, he'd, he'd, you know, rolled his sleeves up, which had revealed these mega sleeve tattoos of only a sort of, uh, you know, only a hard gang member would have. <laughs> and so the photo in the Herald was him sort of just gesticulating wildly, and the headline on the front page was... Thanks, jury, comma, says headhunter. That was the front page headline with this massive photo of Peter Cleveland standing out the front of, of the court, you know. And the cop I told you about earlier, Daryl Brazier, he had an equally good quote, which was sort of something like, just because he's been found not guilty doesn't mean he's innocent, wow. which was a banging quote from a cop, as you can imagine, <laughs> you know, just because he's... And what it led to um, was actually a... a a reform of of the laws. Uh, you know, at that point, um, it, it had to be proven to the criminal standard where someone's assets had come from. And that meant Cleveland threw enough doubt on it through his Angora goat farming and all that sort of stuff that it was too hard. Nowadays, as a lot of people listening will know, it's the onus is on the criminal to prove that they got their goods um, through, the, through the appropriate means. That's why we see those 
warehouses full of of Corvettes and cars and gold bars and gold bullion. Because of the Cleveland case, the government changed the law so that gang members would have to prove that their gains came from appropriate means. So, so this this case, um, you know, which was kind of, you know, let's face it, humiliating for the police to put so much investment into something, and then after two trials, a, you know, a gang member who was, you know, buying a house for eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars just so he could put 88 and tell, boast to his fellow gang members um, that had done it, you know, who had a boat called the Sea Hunters, a motorbike called HHMC, who, you know, flaunted his wealth, boasted about it, could actually walk off scot-free, led, led to this law change, which to this day is actually, you know, every probably every day the, the police are using this law to seize goods off criminals who then have to go and prove back to them rather than the rather than this reverse scenario where the cops were left kind of trying to prove something and 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 struggling to do it so that was known initially as the cleveland clause um to proceeds to proceeds of crime the other thing when i reflect on it is you know at that stage the headhunters had 25 patched members in auckland like i said you know like the all black squad really you know these days i don't know the exact number but People say to me it could be ten times as many as that one chapter in in East Auckland has has um, over three hundred patched and prospect members now. So there's been this huge change in our gang scene in that twenty years, where where a gang that was you know down to down to twenty five guys each with a different nickname that everybody sort of knew to you know completely spreading um, and metastasizing. Um, all around the city and the, and the country. You know, the gang scene is just totally, totally different in this country now to then when it was really some characters and a cop character kind of um, like a one-off sort of event each yeah, year taking them cat on. And mouse cat of. and mouse sort of thing to a sort yeah. of much more sort of spread out um, and uncontrolled sort of uncontrolled sort of gang scene <laughs> in, in, in 20 years. I saw a note that Pedro Cleveland had... Um, been overheard at one point saying that he, there should be an award for headhunter of the year that he would win <laughs> but yeah how much business he was doing yeah and in some ways he was a really fast moving member of the gang as well you know he had seen the kind of money that you could make through methamphetamine you know the hundreds of thousands the millions um and he was an an, an early mover in that scene and of course all of the gang followed him after that, you know, they have all of the motorcycle gangs, including the headhunters, have been at the heart of methamphetamine production um, in this country ever since. And so he was a pioneer without question in terms of this fast-moving, high-life gangster life. You know, he had gone beyond being the sort of motorcycle-riding outlaw and much more into that bling sort of scene. You know, he was way, way ahead of his time in a lot of ways, um, as, a, as a gangster. And police had to give him all his money back. Police had to give him everything back and, um, you know... Bad day for DB. Yeah, it was a bad day for DB, um, who, you know, I'm, I'm sure will be, if he's listening to this, will be stung in some ways um, with memories of it. But in some ways, it was a good day for the police because that law was changed, yeah. you know, to, to allow them to go back. And, you know, the postscript is, um, many, many years later, I was um, um, in the pack-and-save in Petone, 
and I saw on the cover of the Truth newspaper, which was still going at that point, uh, um, an article about gangster dies in car crash. And I brought the Truth because I was still interested in gangs. I go, oh, I'll see who this is, and I and I opened it up, and and it was it was Cleveland. Um, he was he 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 died in a car crash, and that was that was the end of that. Mm. Jim says Pedro um, went around the immediate neighbourhood in Titarangi and introduced himself when he moved in to assure us there'd be no trouble in the street <laughs> and it was all good till the house got busted. We didn't talk much about the bus, but that would have been a big day when the police rolled in. Yeah, that's right. That was that day where they went in and, and found the Sea Hunters, the Emerald Green Sea Hunters boat. Um, they went into his house where he had a um, giant, um, a giant picture of the Godfather you know, from the movies oh in, a, in, his, in his lounge, um, and, you know, and found all of his sort of various things and found cannabis buried in the backyard. And, you know, there was always that same street that that guy's talking about. There was a judge, you know, a judge was one or two houses yeah. away from him. There was a, definitely a judge, a high court judge living, Next door, I think, living yeah. in, one of the, in one of the properties. <laughs> like, it really did have it. It really did have it all. <laughs> Uh, going next door to borrow the garden shears off the High Court judge. <laughs> Love it. Thanks for listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. A special thanks this week to Paddy Gower. Check out his new show on TV3, Paddy Gower Has Issues. Crimes NZ is produced by Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis and Ayanna Piper-Helian. And thanks to Liz Garten and EP of Podcasts, Tim Watkin, for getting it out into the world of podcasts. Crimes NZ is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and most other podcasting apps. Make sure you follow us to automatically get each episode as it drops.